Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Writer's Book Club. I'm Michelle Barraclough and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. How are you all? I hope you've had a great month of writing. This month I was lucky enough to chat with writer and actor Brendan Cowell about his novel Plum and oh my gosh, it was such a treat. How does someone who has written TV shows and 11 plays turn his hand to novel writing? What are the differences? How are they the same? I had so many questions for that poor man. He was actually on a TV shoot in Greece and probably had a million lines to learn and other important actory things to do. But if there's one thing Brendan loves, it's talking about writing and about this very special novel that he calls A Love Letter to His Own Life. So for those of you who don't know Brendan, you're about to have a few aha moments when I read his bio. Brendan is an award-winning writer, actor, and director for television, theatre, and film. He wrote the smash hit Reuben Guthrie for Belvoir Street Theatre in 2009 and wrote and directed the film adaptation, winning an Augie, which is an Australian Writers Guild Award, for the screenplay. Brendan wrote two episodes of the multi-award winning series The Slap, for which he won the Actor Best Screenplay Prize. He's been named the leading light amongst playwrights of his generation by the Sun-Herald and has won the Patrick White Playwrights Award, the Philip Parsons Young Playwrights Award and the Griffin Award. His 11 plays, 11, my gosh, have been produced all around the world. There's probably a pretty good chance you've seen him in numerous TV shows and movies and most recently in the Avatar movies. He was a writer on the acclaimed TV series, Love My Way, in which he starred. That's where I first came across Brendan. Oh my God, I love that series so much. Many of his episodes for Love My Way were also nominated for Augies for Outstanding Screenplay. Brendan's best-selling debut novel, How It Feels, was published in 2010 and Plum was published in 2021. I loved this novel so much. I can't wait for you all to read it and to listen to this chat with Brendan about it. Let me tell you about the novel. Peter the Plum Lum is a 49-year-old ex-star NRL player living with his son and girlfriend in Cronulla. That's in Sydney, Australia. He's living a pretty cruisy life until one day he suffers an epileptic fit and discovers that he has a brain disorder as a result of the thousand odd head knocks he took on the footy field in his 20 year career. According to his neurologist, Plum has to make some changes right now or it's dementia or even death. Reluctantly, Plum embarks on a journey of self-care and self-discovery, which is not so easy when all you've ever known is to go full tilt at everything. On top of this, he's been haunted by dead poets and unable to stop crying, he discovers he has a special gift for the spoken word. With spectral visits from Bukowski and Plath, the friendship of local misfits and the prospect of new love, Plum might just save his own life. Plum is a powerfully moving, authentic, big-hearted, angry, and joyous novel of men, their inarticulate pain and what it takes for them to save themselves from themselves. It's got a roaring energy, a raucous humor, a heart of gold, and a poetic soul. And quite honestly, I could not have put it better myself. Oh, and finally, there are a few F-bombs in this episode. So if the kids are around, you'd best pop the earbuds in. I hope you enjoy this chat with Brendan Cowell. Brendan Cal, thank you so much for joining me today. It is such a delight to meet you. Oh, no, thanks for um, having me on. It's always always fun to talk about this book. 
you don't look like you're sitting in a wintry Australian room there. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm in a weird cabin in northern Greece. Um, so excuse me if the Wi-Fi is a bit ropey. Uh, but, yes, I'm in a place called Pelion, Pelion, which is south of Volos, kind of the northeastern edge of Greece. Um, and I've been shooting a TV show here for a couple of months. Well, one month in Athens and one month here. So I've got an authentic tan and um, it's 30 degrees outside at 9 a.m. And I'm having a Freddo espresso, which is like they put a little bit of coffee in the bottom of this enormous cup. And it's just an incredible amount of wastage. But and the coffee's terrible, but co- but you kind of can't get enough of it for some reason. Coffee's coffee, right? Mm. Brendan, it's very rare that I cry at the end of a book, but you had me going. Um, I'm going to ask first of all, what made you want to write this particular story? Where did the idea or the ideas for Plum come from? I I think. The more I think about it, the more I realise I've been wanting to write it for quite a while. And it came to me at the start of the pandemic when I was living in a basement flat in um, Notting Hill. And um, I was about six months into um, not drinking. I'd I'd given up drinking. I was about six months in and and realised Avatar had been pushed and I was going to be in this basement for a while on my own. And I thought oh, I'm going to lose my mind. Uh, you know, I have to do something. And um, I guess I grew up with these guys and, you know, a lot of these guys are still in Cronulla and I'm very good friends with a lot of ex-football players and my dads and uncles and stuff like that are these kind of guys and my best mates from school. And I just wanted to write about guys in those suburbs cracking on with life into their 40s and 50s and, whether they did or didn't make it and and um, what happens next and and that notion that men kind of have to change with their kids and they have to move with the times because if they don't, they kind of get left behind and that hurts them a lot. So I think there was something in that and and in my experience with, with my father and that territory, but up against that was I was a bit disillusioned with writing because I'd had some... Um, kind of confusing experiences in British television where your show's going that way, then the head of the network leaves and then they want to do this with it. And you're like, what? But I thought, I thought you wanted that. We were, for one year we were talking about that and now I don't understand. And I had a bit of money from Avatar, so I thought I want to write something to reclaim why the hell I write um, because I don't write for any other reason than I kind of have to. But I'm like, I want to get back. And I remembered I, I, it was poetry that, that I started with when I was 8 and 10, 12. I was showing mum and my nan poems. I was reading them out from 15 at university at a poetry club. Afterwards, I was at the Friend in Hand with Tug Dumley. And that gave me the confidence to write Men, my first play. And and I thought, I've got to write something about poetry. And then suddenly those two ideas came together and I went, what happens if one of those blokes becomes a poet? Why would he become a poet? Who's the last guy to, to be rescued by poetry? And I was rescued by by poetry because I was an imposter at, at school. I was a weird arty kid. I could I could play tough in sport, but I was a weird arty kid. I was on TV. I was in theatre. I was doing the poems. 
and I got bullied and bashed up a little bit because of it. And I thought, oh, that's not that interesting that I'm a poet. i tell you what is interesting is if one of Australia's greatest thugs becomes a poet, and then I thought, why would he? Well, maybe his brain's been busted open. And then the concussion and the afterlife and stuff like that um, just started coming into it. And, and, and it literally wrote itself. Like you think Sylvia Plath talking to Peter Lum, it writes itself. Like, And that was what was amazing about the book. It wrote itself. It was just phenomenal. And it sounds like it might have saved you during a pretty horrendous lockdown. I think it saved my life. Like, I, I think Peter Lum saved my life. And I, the amount of times I cried writing this book because I was trying to change my life. I was trying to become someone else. And you can, but you can't do it chipping away. You can't chisel away at change. You know, nothing changes if nothing changes. And people talk about changing and I'm going to do this and I'm doing a bit of this and I've cut down. It's all bullshit. You want to change, you've got to do a 180. And that means doing something else. What you're doing, don't do that. Do the other thing. <laughs> and that hurts, man. It hurts so much to change and it hurts everyone around you. It's really, really hard. And and so I thought if Peter Lum can do it, I can do it. And I think Peter Lum thought if Brando can do it, I can do it. And so but we kept falling over together. Um, and then all my pain came out, you know, my pain of my adolescence and my pain of my male relationships in my life and my pain of failed relationships with women. And it all came out in this book, you know, and, and it was just a love letter to my life, a love letter to hope. And I guess if you look at all the distorted messages that, you know, are coming out about masculinity and, Men are jumping on weird heroes of the Tates and the Petersons. And, and I'm like, no, Peter Lum, man, get on board Peter Lum because he might not have the therapy. He might not have the podcast, but he's got he's got the intent. He wants to change and he's got this big heart and he wants to connect. And connection is the thing that can save us all. Yeah, and you do it just so beautifully. I mentioned to you that I grew up in a similar kind of environment to you, but down in Melbourne with the AFL version of it and so many blokes down there. I mean, you just captured the spirit and the essence of those men so beautifully. It brought a tear to my eye many a time in the reading. And I think I said to you, I've pushed into the hands of a lot of blokes. I know women can and should read it as well. Um in writing this great big-hearted, open-hearted novel, though, you also cracked open a really important issue, and that's to do with concussion in sport. And that sort of took on a life of its own as well, didn't it, after the novel? Well, you know, hopefully there might be other machinations of the book and hopefully the conversation can continue to crack open. I mean, the conversation has been around for 30 years and, you know, the, in contact sports, People have known about it, but where the book is set kind of around 2018, the Australian media and the NRL are kind of doing similar to what happened in the Will Smith movie of going, look, we understand the science is right, but just, you know, just keep a lid on it because we don't want to lose this game, which is the heartbeat of the nation. You know, how dare you? This is our game. Um, be quiet. And um, But, you know, keep telling us what you're finding at the same time. So... 
I think that's a really interesting place to set the book because it's emblematic of Plum. It's emblematic of Plum's dilemma, which is the information's there. Do you want it? Do you want to bust this open or do you want to just hide? Which is um, often the male dilemma. And I also believe the female dilemma, it's a human dilemma, you know, um, run away or face it, you know. And I read an article this morning about um, concussion in women's sport that there will soon be an app um, in which you can diagnose if there has been any brain trauma within a couple of minutes. And um, people are actually terrified of the technology because there's a lot in Australia, there's a lot of I don't want to know. Yeah, well, a lot you know, of our identities uh, wrapped up in sport, you know, it's just and, and money. Yeah, but there's a there's a big kicking under the carpet epidemic in the Australian character, mm. you know, and, and so... The, it, with Plum, it's like, do you want to get the scans? Do you want to know? No, I just want to fix it. Just fix it. Just get it done. I'll go through pain to get it done. Needle me up, whatever, sacrifice, but just get it done. But with with this tale, it's like what's fascinating about CTE and, what you know, you can't find the tau proteins till a posthumous neuropsychoanalysis, you know, and because you can't get in there to see if they if they're alive in there, but they can cripple your spine, cause mood dementia, depending on where they're seated in the brain at the front or the back, they affect mood or memory, or both, and then your body, and you know, plums like you know just fix it. But the the amazing thing in working with Chris Levi, talking to lots of rugby league players, including Andrew Johns and Mark Spud Carroll and Joel Kane, and there is possible in this traumatic brain injury there is going to be a descent you still have an opportunity to fight against it in what you do with your life and a lot of guys in sport you know i was hearing them talk on nrl 360 the other day they buy a they buy an expensive sports car and then they just hit the piss you know and they their body goes to seeds and they drink and they smoke and they bet and they have these cars and their money goes and their relationships goes, that's going to increase the CTE, that's going to increase the concussion, and that's going to probably knock you off. But if you go and surf like Andrew does, if you read books like Andrew does, if you challenge it, if you connect with your children, connect with nature, and in the in, in my book, connect with your own emotional language, there's a real possibility you're going to have a terrific life and you can take this thing on. It is, it's It's. not a sentence, you know, and so that's kind of emblematic also of if perhaps what we could all do um, with each other in this country. Yeah, yeah. Brendan, can you take us back to the start of writing this novel and how? tell us how the process of putting the story on the page started for you? Um, well, because I, I, my favourite part of writing is writing. I, I love the words part. I've always written too many words without really knowing what I'm doing. Um, I just follow my nose and write and write and write. And then I get to third and fourth drafts. I'm like, what the hell is this story actually about? You know? And as I've got older, I'm my words are becoming less important. I'm I'm just trying to keep things simple and make sure the integrity of the character is coming through. You know, give the reader a bit more credit, give the audience a bit more credit. And work the structure because I think the structure is where the magic is, where you can genuinely surprise a reader um, or an audience 
but never lose their understanding and their care for the characters. And so I crafted this thing for two or three months before I wrote a word. And wow. Which is why it reads so effortlessly is because it's intricately plotted out. And this is counterintuitive to the way I want to write because I'm like a bull at a gate wanting to just splurge out some dialogue and some yeah. metaphors. I thought when you first yeah. start, when you just started saying then I just let the words unravel that there was going to be no plotting. So how does that work? No. Brandon Cowell opposite. I, I was in my basement flat on Westbourne Park Road in Notting Hill and I had pieces of paper. It would have looked like a madhouse um, as I grew a beard and and there was just little bits of paper because I wrote the 10 chapters out on one piece of paper, which is something I always do. And I always write a story in one piece of paper and I put it on the wall in front of me. So no matter what I'm writing, I can always look up and go, that's the story. If I'm not writing that story, then I shouldn't be writing that scene. It's got to always come back to what this dude is trying to do. And But that, I had all the characters' journeys mapped out and I had all these kind of different coloured pens with all these arrows all over the wall um, till I went, I think I know exactly what everyone's doing, where they're heading. Now the trick is with writing, take your characters in the opposite direction to where they're going to get to. You know, make sure you torture them and send them, if they're going to end up northeast, send them southwest. Um, and then that beautiful inertia is what all audiences love to watch and love to read. Um, is that a character, there's no way a character's getting there. And um, and so I knew where I was headed. And and I, when you know where you're headed, you actually know what your story's about. You have a premise um, and you have something to say. And I had something to say. Uh, and then finally the floodgates opened and I wrote this thing so quickly. I wrote it in five weeks or something like that. It's just wow. <laughs> it's crazy. That's amazing. And also I was writing from... I was doing a boxing class online with the great Clay O'Shea at 8 a.m. And then I was writing from 10 till 6. You know, it was like discipline or I would lose my mind. And so I'd go down for lunch to get my food for cook to cook for dinner. And that was it. I wrote, you know, and and that that's how you pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So you said you write three or four drafts. What's happening in each draft? What are you honing? Well, the first draft, you know, my agent, my mother and my girlfriend at the time read, and then I just do another one. And then we sent it out. And then um, the great Catherine Milne comes on board. Oh, God, she's wonderful. And, you know, and the book was, you know, half what it became because of her. And that's not – I'm not waxing lyrical because she – published my book but she just a lot of people in this country and in this and in television all over the world produce from a place of fear and it is the worst thing you can do to an artist is instill doubt and what Catherine does and and oddly enough it ends up more critical and more precise is she takes what you've got and goes how do we throw this up in the air and go for it and the writer goes oh wow you really want me to? And she goes, yeah, and it's not doing that yet. What you've got is a story about this, this, and this. It dips a bit here. You're backing away here. Bloody do it. And you go, oh, my God. <laughs> and to have 
a publisher who's not going, oh, I wonder if the audience and the demographic and the reader and the blah, 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 oh, could you do, oh, oh, oh. And you go back to the computer going, oh, shit, what am I doing wrong? Oh, no, I hope this is okay. I mean, how the hell are you meant to create from that? Milne just goes, run hard over there. That's where your book is. And so you come back to her with the next drive and she goes, we're getting there. And you're like, oh, God. And then, you know, I had a really good editor and and so the next two drafts were with those guys. Um, Madeline James was my editor. And so the, the next two drafts were with those guys and then you're you're on, you know, you're just, you're just being worked. Um, so, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. So when Catherine told you to run towards something with Plum, what was the big thing? Like, does something stick in your mind that was like a big, oh, my God, yes, I'm, I'm going to go there and do this with this novel? Everybody always comments on the ending, which we won't give away, but that's because of her. <laughs> and right. there was just bits where I got a bit esoteric and it got a bit philosophical and contemplative and it, and it, and it kind of got a bit interested in itself. And she was just like, just keep it tough, keep it about what it is. And I think Catherine really loved the notion of a guy that's never been afraid of anything and now he's afraid to die. And so we we were very much struck with how does this beast behave when he's faced with the notion that this one he can't win? He can't run through a wall. He can't beat it up. He can't lie his way out of it. He's got to face it. He's got to open up. He's got to change. He's got to communicate with his girlfriend and his son. And he's fucking terrified. Oh, and it so takes she him was a while to get there, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, he gets there and he falls over and he gets there and falls over. And yeah. I've had numerous calls of people going, oh, God, he's bloody done it again. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know, but. There's no story unless he keeps fucking up. I'm sorry. Um, you know, he's got to learn the big lesson. And I, I don't actually know if he ever does, you know, um, but he gives it a shot. And I tell you what, in life, like, you don't have to get it right. You just got to try. Or as my great mate Andy Ryan says, sometimes you just got to try to try. You know, just try to try. And and I think that's what's hurt me in relationships with men in my life of, I've gone, you didn't even try to try. Just try and just try and then fuck it up. But fucking try to try. And so I think this book's about going, just try to try, guys. Try to try. And and so we were with that. The big man is scared to die. And so she was like, that's where the magic is. That's where the fear is. That's where the toughness is. And just hold it over that flame um, and don't get, don't wander off. You know, and when you do it, go for it, you know, and and when you have a guy who's trying to change, you can actually make his behavior reprehensible because the reader will be with him because they know how afraid he is. And and when you when you meet Plum, you kind of love him because, you know, he's out of his depth. So he can be a bit of a prick. He can be a bit pushy. He can be cold to his son. He can be dismissive and and belligerent. You know, he's belligerent when he drinks and. And, and the reader will go, come on, Plum, we know what you're doing. You're afraid. You're just a scared little boy, you know? Yeah, and you put a lot of other things in his way to be afraid of. You know, his son is just about to start playing first grade league as well. So even though he's trying to 
deny to himself that he's damaged from all of these, you know, head knocks that he's had in his career and he wants to support his son, there's a fear there that he's afraid to admit to as well. And then all sorts of little fears come up, don't they, when he's swimming, when he's, you know, contemplating going on a stage. Like there's all these little moments where his fear or his ability to overcome fear is challenged. It's so good. You, you just did such a beautiful job, Brendan, and um, I'm so glad you had Catherine Milne. She's amazing. I actually listened to you, um, Catherine, interviewing both you and Trent Dalton on stage. Was that Sydney Writers Festival or some event a couple of years ago? Yeah, I was meant to be there, but I, I got I got COVID for yeah. the exact six days at the festival. Still oh, such oh, a wonderful man. conversation, and I urge listeners to go and look that up as well because that was such a great conversation going into more of the themes about um, both of your stories and your writing. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So, Brendan, what happened when you sat down to the page each morning? Uh, I broke it down into, like, micro, really micro beats, Um so if there was a chapter that would probably be ba- broken up into, um, you know, 10,000 words or 8,000 words, and then I broke those beats down into like 600 words, <laughs> I'm like it only needs to be that for this paragraph. And then I'd write a paragraph at a time, um, like 300 words at a time, and I'd give myself an hour um, and before I'd have a cup of tea and I'd go, I'm just going to write that bit. And... When I got it done, and I revise and revise and revise, I'm a crazy reviser because it's just... <laughs> so when my first draft comes out, it's probably had a fair lacquering, um, you know, and then I'd work on that and it'd be perfect and I'd move on. Uh, but really, really precise, really, really um, thought out and making sure it's ticking off everything that I've got going in all my weird arrows all across the, the room. Um, meticulous and this is the opposite way to where where I've worked my whole life which is just you know letting it fly and see what happens Um, except in television we have all those confines but um, yeah I I would do it gently because it it is a really gentle story in the way that it's about the intricacies of a guy getting in touch with his innermost feelings not just his feelings his innermost feelings and in order to do that, it's a precarious balance um, with the tone of it. So, yeah, it was very, it was very considered <laughs> and slow, but yeah. you know. And you polish as you go. That's so interesting. So, would that be? I mean, yeah. you were in lockdown, so you had all this time on your hands. Would you write a novel in the cracks of regular life, or while you're on a shoot or traveling? Or I've been trying to do that at the moment and because uh, I've got another book and that I want to write and it just doesn't fucking work. You know, I can write two or three TV shows in a movie um, on a plane on the go, um, you know, in the Qantas lounge, in a cafe, in Prague, whatever. But a book, it's just the full symphony and you kind of owe it to a novel to not do anything else. And I, I don't know, other novelists... I'm sure would disagree or not disagree, but have their own process. But no, I need a world event. Um, you know, when I wrote How It Feels, I I said to my agents, leave me alone, you know, for a, my acting agent, leave me alone. I'm like, what? You know, I've got to write this book. 
And I probably gave myself a nervous breakdown on that book because I stressed out about writing a book. At the end of the day, you just got to get in there and do it and eat the elephant bite by bite, you know, and I'm better at that now without stressing. Um, but I kind of can't be auditioning and going for meetings and developing other projects. You you owe it to the novel. There's a novel in there. You just got to get it out, you know, so, and you can't get it out with, you know, it's very needy. A novel is very needy lover it, you know or child you need, you have to kind of put you have to give it your full attention or it won't dance for you you know I think anyone who has a child will agree with you that it's very hard to get any kind yeah. of work other work done when that child is in the room yeah I, I looked at a kid for like three hours the other day and I'm like I have to put everything down and play trains with this kid <laughs> or it, the kid will yell and I, I was just complaining about it to the parent. They're like, yeah, that's what it's like for, for like, you know, 14 years every day. I'm like, oh, God, why <laughs> do you do it? Um, you know, because I'm like, fuck this kid, I've got to sit here and play trains. And then once I gave up and went, all right, trains, I had I had a really good time <laughs> playing trains. <laughs> and then I went, oh, now I am. It's like you've got to give into it. Yeah, and then it's awesome. <laughs> Your dialogue is next level, uh, which I would expect nothing less from you, Brendan, given all of your experience with playwriting and screenwriting. Um, but the characters just jump off the page. You can hear them. What do you think is the secret to writing good dialogue in fiction? I think because so much of it is interior monologue, um, novel writing, with the uh, with the dialogue it's kind of like as an actor in film, you can let the camera come and get the feelings off you. You don't have to show them like you do, like you have to um, at the opera house, um, standing on a stage. And and with with this dialogue, it's kind of let the reader come and get it off the character. Let the reader jump into the page and, and come and get the meaning off the character. Don't give it to them. And because in the in the in a monologue you can go, he was thinking this and it reminded him of this as he drank his beer, he remembered his thing. And so it is very much, you know, about listening to people on the bus type dialogue. Like and what I love about, you know, say the the men at the tavern who a lot of men are responded to going, those four guys are just in taverns up and down the coast of Australia. There's just they're just dotted everywhere and they're just drinking away the pain, but they've also got each other in life. So there's a kind of wonderful juxtaposition there of like they are connecting, but they're disconnected um, and they're afraid and they're getting older and they're in pain. Yeah, they're all yeah. scared and they're fucked about each other. And so, I mean, I love writing dialogue. I have to resist writing dialogue, but I love the way people speak and I guess I love the way people speak who haven't, quite got the words you know and that's kind of where I grew up was people with so much feeling you know and if you go to Cronulla and you go to the suburbs people I guess you know people really love life they love their swimming pool they love dinner they love sunsets they love their dog and there's just this beautiful kind of relish for life but possibly when you know big stuff comes in it's a bit beyond their emotional language, not their intelligence, their emotional language, different things, which is also why, 
you know, I have contempt for the way suburban Australia is often written, where it is does question intelligence, not intelligence, trust me. I have more interesting conversations with my friends in the Southern Shire than I do with a lot of people in the inner city who are just trying to say the right things. There's free thinking complexity on a Chekhovian level in the suburbs, um, you know, where there's an internal paranoia in the city. And I, I just love the poetry of the attempt to clutch language. And I love the connections and the simple connections. And so I, I, I have relish in that. And that's where I think Peter Lum is a poet. I love the way he busts up his own language and speaks almost like a commentator. But he, And his poetry develops as his heart opens. So I don't know. I, it's the less is more thing, but, um, you know, just listen. Just re- listening to how, the way people try to, you know, struggle to communicate. I'd love to um, have you read a couple of sections because one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is give people, you know, instead of just going, oh, this is how you write, this is how I write, this is my process, now off you go and do it as well, is go, well, here's a novel and here's like a real-life example of how that dialogue worked or, you know, that's how that was done. Right. See what he's talking about there. There's just this beautiful example when Squeaky comes and picks Pete up and they're just having a bit of a chat in the car. Yeah, we're on. Okay, here we go. Here we go, literary listeners. Uh, It's also available on Audible. If anyone wants nine hours of this, I read (laughs) the book out on Audible in in my Sylvia Plath impersonation. So jump on Audible and have a look. Fantastic. I'll put a link in the show notes. Also, I'm going to get you to read a Sylvia Plath bit later too, if that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear Brendan Cowell's Sylvia Plath. Right. Finally, uh, Squeaky turned up the AC in the radio and drove his mate home. He thought about filling his buddy in on the stuff that had been going around about him, how that woman, Jerno Dana, was going to release images and stuff about Plum's demise, but he thought better of it. The bloke had had enough for one day, plus... Newspapers were tomorrow's bog roll. Back at Colonel Road, Squeak climbed out of the Subaru that he had under instruction from its owner, parked quietly and slowly on the pebble drive. You okay, Plum Day? Yeah, all good, Hugo. The two mates met round the front of the vehicle for the key exchange. The sun was low over the mangroves, and round here that meant just a touch of chill round 6pm. But you were still a pussy if you donned a jumper, even midwinter. You'll get a hand out, Squeak said stroking his thin arms to delete the goose pimples. Yeah, nah, true, get a payout, it's all good there. And Qantas won't not look after you, they're the spirit of Australia and so are you. That's it, that's it. Good old Qantas never crashed. You going to see a doc about it all? About what, mate? The head stuff, the conk out, the brain failure episode. Maybe, yeah. Don't know. Could be something in it. Pete knocked on his little mate Squeak's head and laughed. Could be something in it for all of us. Catch you Thursday. Go floodlight. Hugo Squeaky Rennick, the first jockey to win the Golden Slipper twice in five years, watched as his buddy ambled up to the front porch, hoping to fuck he wasn't completely fucked. (laughs) Oh, that was beautiful, Brendan. That's such an Australianism, isn't it? Maybe, yeah, dunno. Yeah, no. And I love that section as well because it just so perfectly illustrates Squeak is trying to just have the conversation just to crack Peter open just a little bit and Peter's having none of it at this point in the novel. Yeah, and I think he says later in the book or 
I often can't remember, but but he said, me, you know, maybe I should I should get mine checked. I've fallen off enough ponies in my time. So they are kind of egging each other on, but none of them are really doing anything about it. But they're like, absolutely, you know, <laughs> I'm probably fucked too if you're fucked, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but the love is huge. The love is is you can feel in that. You don't you don't hear any of them say, I love you and I'm worried about you. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe in actions, you know, he went and picked up his car and drove him back. That's men loving each other. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there, help you move house. I'll pick up the car, and no dramas, you know, and that's that's their way. Yeah. That small passage also illustrates, I think, this beautiful blend of humour and pathos that you have going on in the novel. There's just this gorgeous combination, you know, laughing one minute, having a little cry the next. Um, it's my favourite kind of writing. Is that something that sort of just comes naturally to you in the writing? I think, oh, no, I know, I mean, I hope so. I, I try to write funny stories about something, you know, about an issue, um, you know, stories that kind of need to be told. Um, I try to make them really funny because I I think, you know, I like things that are funny and I think humour is a way to connect an audience or a reader. And um, and then I just think the best stories break your heart. You know, I, th- I think if there's anything that you remember, it doesn't matter what genre it is, if it broke your heart, you probably loved it. And if it didn't break your heart, you probably go, oh, that was okay, whether it's theatre, movies or a book. And so I'm always thinking, and that's not making something saccharine or sentimental or mushy. Often it's the opposite, but I like to make people's hearts swell, you know, if possible. I think Flaubert said that. And, 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 and surprise them in that way and often in an invisible way like in a scene like that where it's just two dudes exchanging keys on a lawn but you suddenly find yourself with wet hot eyes and you go what's that it's like oh i connected to that want to help a friend or want to help but you can't because unless plum goes yeah i'm fucked i'm gonna see the doctor you can't help because they haven't let you in and plum is the king of not letting you in you know yeah also the story would have ended at page 58 and we couldn't have that (laughs) brendan what does your experience as a writer of plays and as a screenwriter bring to your novel writing, do you think? Oh, I mean, you know, a lot of the TV and screen stuff I write on, I I, I don't get to invent the characters. And um, what I love with this one was like, you know, I remember Mike Lee, the filmmaker, talking about it and when he comes up with his characters and he has those six-month workshops with the actors in situ and he said you know when i get an actor to create a character i don't get them to say play their brother or their husband or their dad i get them to play their second cousin or that guy from work they've had two conversations with and and then you know them you know their walk and you think you know a bit about them but then you can fill in the rest and so i kind of with this book like the characters are an amalgamation of people i kind of know and 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 with a little bit of stuff for people I really do know, and so I got to form these characters. And and for me, Plum is all about the relationships, especially these relationships with five women. And 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 so the I got to just pour into that. Um, but with with any storytelling, especially TV and film, you lose people in TV if you don't connect all the dots of emotional truth. If you do anything for the sake of television and film, a cool scene, a TV scene, wouldn't it be cool if they did that? 
you don't lose the audience. And it's just that real slow process of making sure the next time you see them, it's because of the last time you left them. And just go with them. So every single character, even if they've got two lines, everything is connected. And then you can just clear it all out and keep it really simple. And that's what TV has taught me is just keep it really simple. And then when you get a chance, shoot your guns. Just absolutely go for it when you get your time. Don't go for it all the time. Build it up, emotional connection, and then rip right in and say what you've always wanted to say. Um, and 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 so I, I take that, and in a lot of ways, it's not dissimilar to TV and film, this book, because it's a page-turner. I don't have three pages describing the morning over Cronulla Beach, you know what I mean, and the history of the Cronulla riots and and the flavour of the smoothie and Plum's hand. It's like, you know, the smoothie was cold and made him and gave him a headache, you know. It was just, it's just on. And in that Hemingway, write one true sentence at a time and then write another one. Cronulla's not a bullshit place. These are not bullshitters, these people. They're not flamboyant and lyrical. So be direct. Almost like Brendan the Poet had to get out of the way to write a book about Plum the Poet, you know, and that was kind of my process. Uh, but this is this is fast, economical, almost cinematic storytelling in a lot of ways. Um, it, it doesn't wander off it, it, because you have a bomb underneath it, which is what TV and film teaches you. If you've got a bomb underneath something, then you can have the characters talk absolute nonsense and it's compelling because you're going, oh, no, it's going to happen. And you were saying before that every character has their own arc and you plan that, don't you? So that does mm. that add also to that kind of richness, that, that layered quality? Yeah, and that's where you kind of hopefully connect your theme. If you have a look through Plum, every character is a poet. So every character does give their philosophy on life at one point in the book, which is like a little um, writer thing where, you know, they all offer Plum what they think living is for they're all philosophers and poets as everyone in greece is that i've found out um everyone's a socrates in greece <laughs> and and in cronulla everyone is too you know so they're and also they're all facing the theme which is how to change um because plums changing the ripple effect but if you look at you know bridget and trent um charmaine renee gavin they're all experiencing a shift. So if you went, which you probably could do in a big TV series or something, this episode's about Gavin or this episode's about Trent, they're all having a plum time. They're all going through a plum time. So the theme of change is connected to all the characters and they're all kind of the lead character. It's just that we're shining a light on plum in this book because that's what it's called. Um, yeah. But I, I think they're all having the same experience. They're all trying to change into someone they're kind of embarrassed to be but want to be and asking the world around them if it's okay to do it, you know? Yeah. Just saying that everyone's a poet reminds me of the poets and I feel like we have to bring up Charles and Sylvia and I would love it if you could read a section from when Pete and Sylvia are in the house together writing. Do you mind reading another little section? I love it. I'm an actor and a writer. <laughs> okay, I'll give it a shot. Thanks. Do your best, Sylvia. Oh, okay. Just open up that little computer program. 
in the brain. Okay. Writing stuff down was easier than saying it and more informative. Plum read back over his letters and it was often like someone else had written them. He wondered if the stuff he was reading would have stayed hidden forever if Sylvia had not forced his biro. What's your favourite word, Peter? Sylvia asked him one morning as he chopped up a grapefruit with a butter knife. Aye? Word. What's your favourite word? Or words. She put the fleshy stuff in her mouth and winced. What's yours? Pete asked, pen in hand at the dining table. I asked you first. I don't think I have one. Everyone has a favourite word, favourite colour, favourite food. Favourite colour is blue because the sky. Favourite food is steak sandwich. Oh, my God, you are such a brute. Really? A Neanderthal. Okay. What word gives you a thrill? What word have you written or, hmm, let's put it this way, what word sums you up or drives you? What is a word that says, this is me, this is Peter? Pete spun the pen in his fingers, thinking of all the things he dug. He liked food and sex and contact sports. He loved the feeling when you hadn't had any of them, but you knew you were about to have lots. And he liked how that made you feel, that relaxed sort of lust sensation when desire met expectation and they got on well. Appetite, Pete said, thinking, yes, that's three syllables and not at all dishonest. Pathetic, said Sylvia almost immediately, walking out of the kitchen and onto the deck. Pete kept working on his letter to Sarah, asking her to forgive him for all them years when he thought the sun shined out his ass. Like how he iced her for 10 years for not wanting to come to games, calling her selfish to their mum and saying she must be jealous of his fame. Whereas she never was jealous at all. Sarah feared the limelight more than he did. She just didn't like watching league. She only liked netball and quizzes. He also thanked her for how she used to hang with him after Albert had left again, admitting it had been scared in house all those years and that she had provided true comfort after the noise. Pete couldn't write it all fast enough, the words pouring out, and he would have delved further if Sylvia had not re-entered somewhat sheepishly through the sliding door. She stood above him and caressed his thinning scalp, moving the strands of hair about. It was clinical, almost maternal at the touching. There was definitely nothing sensual about it. I'm sorry, Peter. You're so right. Right about what? Appetite. It is an incredible word to pick. Appetite is everything. Appetite is why we write, why we hunt, why we fuck. Everything is appetite. Yeah, I, I, I thought without appetite, we starve. Without appetite, we die. Without appetite, we are skeletons. Ah, thank you, Brendan. That was... But it kept going, but... I know. Well, what's the next line? He was thinking about ribs mostly. <laughs> Which is a skeleton, bad skeleton joke, but I'll take it. Oh, so good. <laughs> um, thank you for reading that. That's just absolutely made my day. Can I ask you one last question? Did this novel teach you anything about writing? Yeah, it, 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 it taught me something about writing, about me as a writer, um, which is, you know, if I'm honest with a book, the book will be honest with me. Don't try. I think that was written on Bukowski's gravestone. Great gravestone. Don't try. <laughs> Don't try to write something brilliant. 
align it with what you're going through and align it with what you're looking for and and it'll come out i mean this book was was something i was truly experiencing and afraid of and i used the book in a lot of ways um i let the book be the thing um and i gave myself to the book and it, it probably the first time in my life there was absolutely no bullshit in writing this and it was very very scary and very very dangerous and if it comes from that place readers have no choice but to connect with it this is a rugby league player who becomes a poet so you've got people that hate rugby league and read and you've got people that love rugby league and don't read so basically i've excluded everyone from reading this book. <laughs> I never got to publicise the book because of the pandemic. And when the Sydney Writers Festival came out, I got COVID. Somehow the book is being read by lots of people. And I think it's just because the connection is palpable because I didn't lie to the book. And and I, I think I had a question, you know. I think I think I had a question in this book, which was about me. Um, you know, I, I just played John Proctor in The Crucible at the National and there was a great story there, but he couldn't write it. And then he connected it with his own relationship dilemma and he connected it with his dad and his guilt. And suddenly he could write a, a, a political play about the art of listening and blame cancelling. And so I think the story's in there, but, you know, don't bullshit to the piece, you know. If you want it to work, you, you've got to put yourself in it and you've got to be willing um, to really let what the book will tell you be true, you know, and and uh, that's where I, I'm going to work from from now on. Um, and I guess that's being truly being an artist, you know, it, it is that fearlessness of, of where it will take you instead mm. of thinking what will readers want, what should I do, what will get made, you know. I mean, you can talk about the world from being honest about your village. You know, so I, I think that was what I learned. Yeah, well, in cracking yourself open, you've made something that is deeply, deeply relatable. And I think that's why people will read it and will continue to read it and, you know, keep pushing it into actors' hands and I'll keep pushing it into people's hands as well. And between all of us, all of us evangelists, people who love this <laughs> book, um, this book is going to live forever. Brendan? I hope so. It's just, it's a Peter Lum, you know, it's, it didn't explode. It didn't die. It's just got this Peter Lum thing of like, it just keeps on fight the book, but people are still, it's still growing in its own humble little way. And I'm happy with that. Yeah. I wonder if you'll ever see the screen. Do you think? No comment. No, oh, no comment. I'm going to take that <laughs> as a silent comment. <laughs> um, Brendan, Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to me today. That was absolutely brilliant. So much gold in there for writers. Before I even read this book, I, of course, knew you from being on the telly. Um, I think every woman my age loved Love My Way. And I still, <laughs> when, when somebody tries to tell me their dream, I hear your voice in my <laughs> head saying, don't tell me your dreams. Nice. That was my first line in Love My Way, I think. You know, you kind of find out in that show he's probably in love with her at that time. Yeah. He's probably always in love with her. 
So, you know, that's why the writing in that show was so amazing. Persky and Lou Fox and Tony McNamara and Fiona Series, who I probably learned to write off in a lot of ways, those those guys. Um, so, yeah, I think the tone of Love My Way, you know, that kind of slightly heightened domestic tone um, with so much heartbreak and and slight sexy and funny is, is probably something I've taken on, you know, from from what we created together, those writers. Yeah, again, just really vulnerable, really authentic, really relatable. So beautiful. Mm. Thanks, Brendan. Lovely to see you. Lovely to chat with you. Yeah, you too. Hopefully lots of people come and have a listen to us. I hope they do too. I really appreciate it, Michelle. The pleasure's mine. There you go, Brendan Cal. What did you think of that? I loved what Brendan had to say about how the theme ripples through every character and how Catherine Milne encouraged him to run towards the hard thing and the heart of the story and not write from that place of fear or worrying about what the reader will think. It was so good. I, I just got so much out of that chat. I hope you did too. You'll find Brendan over on Instagram, so go and give him a follow over there if you want to check out what he's up to. I've popped a link to Brendan's Instagram in the show notes, along with links to buy your own copy of Plum. So you can uh, get those show notes right here in your podcast app or over on my website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. Right, who's coming up next? We're doing the first middle grade novel on the podcast and Honestly, who better to talk to about writing kids' novels than the fabulous Alison Tate? I think I started reading Elle's blog, Life in a Pink Fibro, maybe 15 years ago. Um, It was a parenting blog. I had a parenting blog. We were all over on Blogger. Remember that old platform? So many years ago now. Um, And then she was in my ears with Valerie Koo on the Australian Writer Centre podcast for many, many years, interviewing hundreds of writers about their books and their craft. So I've had Elle in my life for quite a long time. But now, of course, she's big with the middle grade set. She writes under the name A.L. Tate and is the internationally published best-selling author of middle grade adventure series, The Mapmaker Chronicles, The Adaban Cipher Novels and The Maven and Reeve Mysteries. Her latest novel, and the one we'll be discussing, is The First Summer of Kelly McGee, which is a cosy middle grade mystery. So a bit of a departure for Elle in that it's a contemporary novel, but of course it still has all the elements kids love about Elle's novels. Compelling and relatable characters, great dialogue, and a central mystery that keeps you turning the pages. So let me tell you about the novel. It's the last summer before Kelly starts high school and she's been dragged along to yet another family friend's holiday. Determined to change her nerdy reputation, Kelly sets out to make waves, but nothing is quite as she expects. Her usual ally, Sasha, has outgrown Kelly. Her nemesis, Mitch, has brought his cousin, Owen, along and the boring south coast town of Sawyer's Point has been rocked by a series of burglaries. Dun, dun, dun. Kelly, Owen and Mitch decide to investigate the robberies, bringing them face to face with a local gang and a possible ghost. But when Sasha goes missing, Kelly must draw on all her smarts to find her friend and discovers that being Kelly McGee has its own benefits. 
All right, so middle grade novelists, this is your chance to ask the highly experienced Alison Tate all your questions about writing middle grade novels. So grab a copy. The other beauty of middle grade novels is that they're quite short. So, you know, it's going to be a quick read this month. You can buy a copy of the novel wherever you get your books. I've also popped a link in the show notes, which you can tap on straight out of whichever podcast app you're using or on the Writers Book Club podcast website. And of course, I'm giving away a copy of the novel with thanks to Scholastic Australia. Entries are now open. So all you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter and you'll go in the running to win. You can find the sign up over at writersbookclubpodcast.com and all the details for the giveaway are over on Facebook and Instagram. So go and follow me over there if you don't already. And of course, if you already subscribe to the newsletter, don't worry, everyone's included in the draw. So everyone's got a chance to win. That's it for this month. Thank you so much for your company. I'm recording as always on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm lucky enough to live and work. Speaking of beautiful unceded lands, I recently finished Anita Heiss's latest novel, Billa Yaradangalangdare, and it was absolutely sensational. It's set in Wiradjuri country around the Gundagai and Wagga Wagga areas, and I can't recommend this more. I think every Australian needs to read it. Um, the Guardian said, there are books you encounter as an adult that you wish you could press into the hands of your younger self. It's a novel that turns Australia's long mythologized settler history into a raw and resilient heart song. And honestly, that just sums it up. So that's another hard recommend from me. All right. Have a great month, everyone. I'll catch you next month with Alison Tate. Until then, happy writing. <laughs>